Welcome to NuclearCast, the official podcast of the Annual Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufer, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a very special guest. He is well-known in the Air Force as one of its great thinkers. That, of course, is Brigadier General Ty Newman, who currently serves as the Director of Concepts and Strategy for the Deputy Chief of Staff for Air Force Futures at Headquarters Air, Air Force and, of course, the Pentagon. And, uh, of course, Ty is a uh, pilot. He, uh, I think I, we first met about eight years ago whenever I was uh, making the rounds of all of Global Strike's bases talking nuclear deterrence. And you were the vice at, the, at Ellsworth at the time, and so that's when we first met. But he's been going on to bigger and better things since then and agreed to come on NucleCast to talk about the future of conflict. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's great to, great to be with you uh, today, Adam. It's been uh, a pleasure to be invited to, to be on your podcast. I've seen the great list of folks that have come before me and uh, been on your show, so I'm excited to be part of that uh, crew now, and hopefully I have a good story I can tell and share. Absolutely. Now, the, the Air Force has just signed out its future operating concept, and as we think about the future of conflict, you know, there's Russia and Ukraine, which is certainly we have no clue how that's going to play out. We've got an increasingly aggressive China. We've got North Korea that uh, has said it's going to continue to build its nuclear arsenal such that the United States, uh, you know, will, will back off in terms of, and of course the South Koreans in particularly will back off from any efforts to topple the ream. If, if that's of course what Kim Jong-un fears and you know, I, I think we could say, broadly speaking, that we live in an, a, an uncertain time at this point. And, and certainty is not in the future. Uncertainty is in the future. And so the Air Force has a difficult future to plan for, which is, of course, your job. So as you're thinking about the future, planning for the, for the future, what are some of the sort of the key things that y'all are taking into account as you build for the the uncertainty of the years ahead. Yeah, well, great, uh, great uh, start there, Adam. I think uh, I think you really hit the nail on the head. The first thing that we think about from a future concept uh, is the only thing certain about the future is the uncertainty of it. And we know that the concept that we are going to develop may not be the perfect concept, but we do believe that's important in order to drive the Air Force and largely drive the Department of Defense in a direction where we think war fighting is going to be, and more importantly, where we can drive the conversation with respect to the capabilities that we think we're going to need in order to not only uh, deter our adversaries from, from taking that leap of faith, if you will, but in the event that we actually get into conflict is still be able to win and, and stop our adversary from achieving their, 
with our objectives. You know, as we uh, take a look at how quickly adversaries uh, around the globe really are advancing technology, advancing capabilities in asymmetric ways, which are very non-traditional in, in the normal frame of war fighting, we recognize that we, uh, particularly in the Air Force, need to change the way that we look at that dynamic and make sure that we have uh, just as much of an advantage in some of those asymmetric ways as we do in the more traditional uh, means of uh, war fighting. So that's kind of where we start with it. Of course, there's a lot of details that go into that. Uh, there's a lot of testing that goes into that, and we can certainly explore that uh, later on in the show here. Yeah, so as you think through... Because we we as a as an Air Force have a tendency to to think in terms of high end platforms, and you know we're in an you know I think the U.S. Uh, debt hit thirty one trillion dollars here recently, and it looks to be significant uh, debt in the you know future budgets near future budgets, and so it's a in some respects it's a constrained budget environment where there's competition for resources. And given the Air Force's aging platforms and the effort to replace aging platforms with what are clearly expensive new platforms, how are you planning for optimizing what we do buy for the types of fights that we may face and then using those resources as efficiently as possible? Yeah, well, you bring up a a really good point, and it's one of our biggest challenges. How do we get to the Air Force of the future with the funding streams and the way we do the budgeting uh, within the Pentagon? And if there were one hurdle or one obstacle that I really wish that we could uh, remove in this process is the way that we do budgeting and the way we fund our different programs. It's very, very difficult for the Air Force to actually leapfrog and and get ahead of some technologies in the way we currently do it, partly because we're very risk adverse. And, you know, that's kind of a funny thing to say from someone that's in the Department of Defense and and, and has been in combat and and done those type of things. We train to fight. We train to win if we do go to, uh, to conflict. But yet, when it comes to actually thinking about the future and investing in the future capabilities that we need, which is uncertain, like I talked about earlier, there's a level of risk that we have to assume. In some cases, you have to be able to put you know, your, your money where your mouth is and actually invest in that uncertain future. And what, uh, what, what actually uh, comes to play in reality is we, we generally will not accept that risk if it is too uncertain or the risk is too high. So therefore, we end up spending money on on life-extending capabilities, legacy capabilities, uh, and and really make a stronger force for the the fight or the war we just fought and not necessarily the one that's in the future. And so as we start taking a look at our concepts, and that's what's really nice about being in the Air Force Futures uh, office and thinking about it, is we try not to think about constrained budgetary environments all that much as we're developing the concept. So we look out 10 or 15 years, so just outside of the find up, the three find up window, if you will, and, and we do war games, we bring concepts in there, and we test out those concepts to see if we like them. And then we start bringing those back into today's time frame, and, to, and then use that information to inform our budget process so that we can start moving the needle 
slowly in that direction, investing in, the, in different types of capabilities and technologies that will help us, you know, complete the kill chain or have a, a, a more robust and more resilient uh, ISR network uh, or have longer range weapons. Um, uh, all of those type of capabilities that you've, you've heard probably come out recently with the, the, the AFA announcements on our collaborative combat aircraft and long range uh, standoff capabilities and, and different types of things, the next generation air dominance aircraft and the NGAS, the next generation air refueling system, all those type of things. Those are future concepts that we believe are going to fit very nicely into our airport's future operating concept. So we take those concepts, and as we build our budgets and build our POM cycle, the, the you know for for proposal to um, OSD and then then to to um, Capitol Hill, that information is informed, and and then we'll drive uh, drive the budgeting process. You know, I uh, a few years ago I worked on a. It was an acquisition reform study that we did for a previous chief while I was with the Air Force. And and one of the things that struck us is as we got in early into the this research project, we found that in the 10 years prior to us looking at acquisition reform, that there had already been 157 acquisition reform studies. And so we essentially just took the best recommendations from all the work that everybody had previously done because we know we have a acquisition problem and it's, you know, it's, it's almost an intractable problem. And as you look over cycles of reform, you see things get a little bit better and then they get a lot worse and then they get a little bit better and then they get a lot worse. And so you never quite solve that problem for legislative reasons. You know, if you take the, the Darlene Drurian event from, you know, two decades ago. So to solve a million dollar problem, we, we added a billion dollars worth of, of sure. uh, paperwork. And so it, it's, it seems to be a hard thing to ever truly become innovative and to act with speed and to do the types of things that we're looking at, some of our adversaries in saying, you know, that they're being pretty creative and innovative in their new capabilities and, and certainly in their thinking and concepts. So I, I wonder as you've sat in your current job and look to the future, is there any advice you would give to the guy that or gal that comes behind you that you might say, Hey, if you really want to be creative, here's what you ought to do. Yeah, well, absolutely. Here's, you know, um, Lieutenant General Highnote uh, is, is great at really taking a big vision and moving that forward. And I think those are some really key attributes that he has from an Air Force Futures perspective that we've kind of built into Air Force Futures now. And so for, for anybody that follows in, in my footsteps, I think the big thing is, continue to think unconstrained and continue to think outside of the box and look at the way we're doing business and don't be afraid to question and come up with um, with different ways of looking at the problem sets. Um, I, you know, that you always hear the paradigm, you know, we're fighting our, our last, we're, we're fighting our last war. Um, and we, we definitely want to break out of that. And the only way to really do that is to continue to have um, a forward looking organization 
that is taking a look at new technologies that are available, studying what the adversary is doing to make sure that we're not missing something, um, doing the risk analysis to see where our own vulnerabilities are and trying to close those gaps while, while taking advantage of, of the capabilities where we do have uh, still a dominant, uh, dominant force, dominant force structure and technology there. So it's really again just, just keeping, keeping your eyes on the horizon versus down uh, where, where you're walking and, and moving forward in that direction, I think is the best way of looking at it. Now, do you think, as we think about future capabilities, do you think we're doing sufficient red teaming of our own of our own plans, of our own thinking, of our own vision of the future? Are, are we looking hard enough? Are we sufficiently red teaming it? And then do you think we have a good enough understanding of where our adversaries are going so that we know, you know, because we're always looking for, you know, air dominance has been what we do as an Air Force. And so we're sort of used to it and expect to continue it. But, you know, could we have a vision of the future that, you know, sees beyond, you know, by way of example or analogy, a, a Navy without aircraft carriers? I mean, do we have the ability to think in such ways that would be dramatic changes in direction? Or are we sort of always pushing to the next generation of where we already are, but it's the newer technology, the the next iteration. Yeah, well, I think you're hitting on the last couple of questions. You're really kind of hitting on a couple of fundamental things. Um, for, first, first of all, we don't have the ability to move our industrial base fast enough and bring capabilities on fast enough uh, to to really react to our adversaries' um, speed, at which they're able to to do the same. So. So we're a little bit handcuffed in, in doing that. Um, I guess, you know, and, and a little bit going back to the, the budget question that we talked about earlier, the way that we've done our budget cycles, we've trained an industrial base that you really can't accept risk either until they've locked into a long-term contract on a capability. And then, then they'll go spend, you know, spend a little bit of uh, sweat equity, if you will, and, and risk in order to develop something. Uh, you know, as I've gone around and actually talked with industry and, and things like that, what they need is to, to cut some of the red tape, get some funding, you know, so they don't have to fund everything up front, but then allow them to de develop some stuff and then iterate on it a little bit to actually meet the requirements that the military is actually asking them to do so they can deliver it a little bit faster. It, you know, our contracting cycle takes a long time. Uh, and then when we, when we get into the requirements build and, and building these capabilities, on uh, it, it really kind of slows us down. So as we start taking a look at, at, at our adversaries, and, and like you said, doing uh, looking far enough forward to to make some bold statements, that's what we're trying to do now in the Air Force. And when you when you ask the question about red teaming, I think we have some small pockets within the Department of Defense that are actually doing a pretty good job uh, of red teaming and. Certainly, we, tar we, we, we value that. We, we value that the red teaming of all of our uh, plans, our concepts, our strategies, and everything, so that we can we can make some adjustments here or there. But part of the part of the concern, maybe part of the issue that we have is you know so many things are going on globally all the time that a large part of the decision makers' uh, time is spent elsewhere, not really thinking about the red teaming aspect of it. 
The other part is our adversary has a vote in this. Uh, it is very, very difficult to know when and, and understand the calculation and the thought process through our adversaries. And so, you know, one of the initiatives, of course, that we're, that we're working on is how do we get inside the OODA loop and, and inside the head of, of uh, uh, Xi and Kim Jong-un and, and, and uh, President Putin and determine, you know, how are they going to use these capabilities that they're developing? What are they developing them for? You know, why are they, you know, why are they moving you know, and, and doing all these shows of force and, and de do these demonstrations and investing in this type of technology. Those are some of the questions that we got to understand. And then, then when it gets into a war fighting scenario, is how are they going to use those to achieve their objectives? And how can we build a force then that will first, you know, compete and deter with them, but then two, uh, deny them their ability to achieve their objectives uh, if they do go after now it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther, and we're talking to Brigadier General Ty Newman, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Talking to Brigadier General Ty Newman, headquarters Air Force. He is the futures guy, and they've we've just come out with the new uh, the new uh, warfighting concept that will guide the Air Force's direction in the years to come. Now, before we return to our conversation, I want to ask you a quick baseball concept. So, for those who question that is, uh, for those who are watching on YouTube. Uh, I'm, of course, wearing the USA team baseball hat because uh, they're playing in the World Baseball Classic Championship tonight. Now, by the time people hear or see this podcast, the, the game will be over and the U.S. hopefully will have already won. But let me ask you, uh, General, do you think that Trey Turner will hit Home run number five tonight, which would make him the the guy who's hit the most home runs of all times in a WBC. Or do you think Mike Trout, who has had sort of a rough uh, WBC performance thus far, do you think he's going to come through with a big game tonight? Well, certainly uh, I support both of them. <laughs> and I want them both to have uh, a great game tonight. Uh, I will tip my hat towards Trey Turner from uh, – uh, as I used to follow him, uh, being out here in the national uh, organization. So um, uh, certainly uh, I hope that uh, Trey Turner will hit, uh, hit a home run and, and while doing so uh, get, get several RBIs. Uh, <laughs> Maybe in, in game Mike Trout will be on base when he does it. So. <laughs> exactly. That'd be perfect. I'm not sure how the lineup is, uh, is set, set up there, but that'd be fantastic if that's the case. Yeah, so this is could be the the greatest USA Team USA ever with Mookie Betts leading off and Mike Trout batting second and what's funny is trey turner's batting ninth 
So, uh, oh, wow. so this is a good team. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. No, great. So turning from baseball, let's talk a little bit about the role of nuclear weapons as you see it in the future. Now, for many of the Nuclecast listeners who've, who've listened to previous episodes, one of the things we've repeatedly talked about is the royal role of theater low-yield nuclear weapons. And I and others have written articles talking about particular scenarios where Vladimir Putin or potentially she might use a low-yield nuclear weapon in a demonstration strike or to destroy a discrete military target and then hopefully force de-escalation or U.S. withdrawal from Ukraine, for example. As you think through and as your team has thought through the future, do you see much of a role for, you know, strategic nuclear deterrence is sort of always in the background, but this use of low yield, you know, one kiloton, five kilotons, less than a kiloton, these low yield weapons, do you think through or see their relevance in, in any sort of scenarios that you've been thinking about as you build the future Air Force? Well, you bring up, uh, you know, fantastic topic. And, and first, I, I do want to applaud the fact that, that you talk so much about nuclear deterrence and you bring up some of these really tough, uh, tough topics and tough issues. Uh, I, I know you've heard me talk on this before, uh, but one of the most important things we can be doing right now is having this discussion. And so, you know, regardless of, of where I stand on this, I, the debate has to happen uh, in forums like this and, and certainly in, in bigger forums so that we can we can really kind of get a sense of where we are as a nation and where we think our adversaries are going uh, with low yield and where it fits into their strategy. Uh, you really kind of asked a couple different questions, one being the utility of a low yield nuclear weapon from an adversary's perspective, and then the second being whether there's value and utility in the United States uh, having a comparable type uh, weapon for turn uh, purpose. And I'll, I'll tell you first from the, from the adversary's perspective, um, you know, the, you know, Russia in particular has come out and said that you know they are they're willing and they they're developing a full range, full spectrum of nuclear yield uh, capabilities, right? And, and certainly, I know you've had more experts than, than myself on that have talked about the type of capability and stuff they're doing. But let's just call it you know the full full spectrum from very low yield to very high yield uh, weapons, right? Why do they do that? Well, you know, I think there's multiple reasons why they do it. They're building out a toolkit uh, that they can use in, in multiple types of circumstances. And in the case of U.S. versus Russia, uh, in, in this in this example, they've seen how our conventional capability is far superior to to theirs. And certainly now with the, the crisis that's going on in Ukraine, you know, they've they've certainly taken a taking several losses and, and their conventional capability is not even what it used to be even a little over a year ago when they started this conflict. So I, I really fundamentally think that they believe that if they were to get in a conventional fight with the United States, they would likely lose. And we believe that certainly, I mean, we believe that that, that would be the case as well, but the equalizer in their mind, the equalizer is some type of nuclear device. That's not, you know, it doesn't smoke 
the entire globe, but can be used on the battlefield to regain the advantage in their uh, to, to their position to their side uh, is effective, and I believe that is also the case uh, when we look at the PRC and the, how they're looking at um, uh, looking at their capabilities. Now, I do believe that between uh, uh, PRC and Russia, they're doing it slightly differently. PRC is expanding their conventional force as well, so they are they are dramatically expanding their, their, their conventional arsenal and their conventional force, but they're also augmenting that conventional force with a, you know, a significant uh, array of nuclear capabilities as well. They don't have nearly the numbers that Russia has or the United States at this point in time, but projections are from, from intelligence communities and, and open source reporting and things like that, that they will quickly uh, be able to start producing, uh, you know, large numbers of, uh, nuclear nuclear weapons at, at all sizes, um, and, and have a stockpile that's going to be similar to uh, that of the United States. You know, by the mid twenty thirties, um, they will likely not catch up with Russia uh, for quite some time because of the, the huge stockpiles that uh, Russia currently has. But then the question is, how would Russia, or how excuse me, how would China actually use uh, a nuclear device? Uh, and I and, and I fundamentally believe that in a for a low yield use, they would use it to again main uh, either uh, strike a strategic target, uh, i.e., like a carrier strike group, or maybe a, uh, a location where we have uh, U.S. or Allied forces or something like that uh, projecting some power, um, or to balance again use it to balance the power to regain the conventional uh, the conventional power. The uh, the challenge that we have from a United States perspective is um, we don't develop small yield capabilities like that intentionally. Um, and it goes back to many administrations and different policy, you know, or actually consistent policy over the course of many administrations that have said we want to lead by, you know, by, you know, our leadership is by, uh, by example. We don't, we're not going to have thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons like we did during the Cold War. We're going to, uh, scale it way down, you know, within the New START Treaty uh, limitations, and keep our stockpiles uh, relatively low, and not have quite as a diverse uh, array of that. Where we're getting ourselves into the conundrum we're getting ourselves into, and, and both uh, Admiral Richard, the former U.S. Stratcom commander, and the most recent uh, Stratcom commander, John Cotton, have both identified the fact that without having a low yield capability in our quiver, if you will, uh, we have a gap in our deterrent. Um, capability because it allows our adversary to believe that they have an option to use a low yield to balance that conventional capability out uh, without the fear of a retaliatory strike uh, with a uh, U.S. low yield weapon coming back. So, so have we been thinking about it? Absolutely. Um, we we know that that first and foremost, uh, from a, a modernization perspective, we have to get the current triad. In the case of the Air Force, the, the, the two legs plus the MC3 Enterprise, we have to get that right. We have to get that modernized so it's effective. Uh, the second part is that deterrent has to be uh, safe, secure, and reliable at all times. And of course, we have to demonstrate uh, our, that, that capability and show the willingness uh, to use that. And our policies that are in place now currently do that, and we're very supportive of that. All of those things then underpin 
all the other hope plans and activities and stuff that we're doing on top uh, on top of that to to, to uh, compete with our adversary and to continue to deter our adversaries from taking a step across that line and doing uh, achievement objectives that uh, are not in the interest of the United States or its allies. So I know it's kind of a long answer, uh, lot to talk about there. I, you know, very passionate subject of mine. So uh, hopefully I, I get some of the spots or some of the questions and stuff you had with respect to that. So one of the things that I've been pondering, and and I'm not sure I quite have the right answer yet, and that is this concern. So some of my colleagues, Chris Yaw and um, John Swiegel and others have, have written an article that's in the current issue of Ether, the Air Force's strategic journal. And they talk about Russia's fear of American conventional air power, our stealth aircraft, F-22s, F-35s, delivering you know, PGMs that are exquisite. And that the Russians and also, to some degree, the Chinese know that they cannot match that capability. And so I wonder, and that the argument goes that the Russians fear this more than they fear theater nuclear use, because those conventional PGMs on stealth aircraft are, you don't have a, you know, a taboo, like you have a nuclear taboo. And so therefore they actually fear that we will use them and we, we could, you know, strike leadership targets or, you know, disable command and control or do these things that would make their own survival very challenging. And so our conventional ability, and, and this is what where it sort of creates a problem for the nuclear world, is that if they fear the conventional more than they fear nuclear, that it can become destabilizing. And so therefore, for, for those in the disarmament community who would argue, hey, get rid of the nukes, you've got these exquisite PGMs on stealth aircraft, they can do the same job, therefore you don't need the nukes. And so I sort of wonder if the Russians in particular fear them even more, are we not accomplishing the opposite in, you know, objective of promoting stability and promoting deterrence and restraint by virtue of having these great conventional capabilities and, and the capabilities that you're looking to build in the future are going to be even better. Yeah, well, we hope so, right? We, we certainly <laughs> hope so. Uh, we, you know, the, the, the precision piece um, is an interesting question. So, we, you know, precision is the way the United States has gone after, you know, responsible targeting of only military-type targetings and minimizing, you know, collateral damage. So it's, it's having the intended effect on the precise location um, uh, of which, we, you know, we want, to, we want to put a warhead. Um that's not easy to do. Uh, it was relatively easy to do when we had air supremacy, when you know we had uh, unlimited ISR capabilities in the theater, uh, when we were generally hitting fixed targets. When you're trying to hit uh, mobile targets or hardly deep and buried targets or, or, or targets that are dispersed and, and constantly on the move, your precision weapons are really not as effective uh, as as you may think, right? So we're not going to just randomly or, or or target precision weapons 
unless we're 100% confident the target is actually at the location where we're going to use that. So, so I'm not sure that I, I buy into the argument that that uh, precision guided weapons are um, are even in the, really in the same context or same conversation as nuclear weapons in, in some way, shape, shape or form. Now, I, you know, certainly from an adversary's perspective, they are they fear those weapons, right? Okay, that's that's good. That's why we designed them, right? It's a part of the deterrence, part of our communication to them that hey, don't do bad things, and we you won't have to see the point into this thing. Um, however, they're also complicating their own situation when they use that argument or or, or people that are defending that position um, by you know intermixing their nuclear command and control, for instance, with their conventional command and control or um, using conventional systems that are also nuclear systems. So both adversaries that we're dealing with right now, you know, China and Russia, are building capabilities that have either a conventional warhead or a nuclear warhead on them. So the reason they're doing that is to complicate our targeting, right? So if they if they if they uh, launch some surface to, to air or surface to surface uh, type systems that are dual capable we don't know what that is, so we have to treat it in the worst case scenario. And so that's where, you know, uh, if that argument were to hold true, then they would certainly try to find ways to stabilize that environment by not intermixing the two. Hence the reason we don't have uh, dual capable systems outside of our aircraft, right? So our bomber aircraft are the only conventional nuclear system that we actually have. Our submarine launch ballistic missiles and our ICBMs are nuclear only. We do not mix those two um, for that purpose. Now, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I want to ask you to, for, for the listeners out there, what would be the takeaway message you would want them to have in regards to the direction that the Air Force is going as it thinks about future warfare? Well, first, I, I think we're headed in a really good direction. I think the Air Force has gotten its arms around how to look at the future, how to define it the best that we can in today's environment, with and, and then taking a, a really hard look at are we investing in the right concepts and capabilities and moving in a direction that's going to continue to compete and deter our adversaries, but if conflicts arise, still continue to, to win in a dominant uh, fashion. I think we have uh, great leadership within the department right now. Secretary Kendall's has, has uh, identified his operational imperatives that are really driving the Air Force in a good direction. The, the, the right conversations are happening, the investments and stuff that we're doing with respect to the type of capabilities we're pursuing are also fantastic. And I think the conversation that we're having uh, in, internal to the building is, is shaping the way the Department of Defense is looking at uh, joint war fighting. And then as well as we're looking at the, the defense industrial base and helping them, uh, you know, design and get after technology and capabilities the Air Force needs in order to, to, to win in the future. So I, I think whether you're in uniform, whether you're serving a civilian capacity or working in the defense industrial base or spreading the, the good, good word here, if you will, uh, it's very, very uh, positive uh, direction that we're going with respect to that. Are we where we need to be? Absolutely not. We're really about 10 years behind where we need to be. Hence the urgency for which uh, we have to get after this stuff and we need uh, some of the best and brightest people uh, working on it. So I appreciate uh, the uh, podcast you had earlier uh, with
with Robin talking about retaining and bringing in some fantastic uh, new folks into the communities, of, particularly on the nuclear side of things, but writ large across all the services and, and certainly for the Air Force perspective. Uh, we need uh, people that are excited about this business and want to do more. So thanks for thanks for the time here, Adam. I probably ran out of time uh, talking too much here, but I, I do appreciate the conversation and look forward to, to talking with you some more. Well, I want to thank you, Brigadier General Ty Newman, for joining us on this episode of NucleCast. And of course, always thanks to the listeners. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Well, that was an interesting discussion with Brigadier General Ty Newman on the future of the Air Force and what it wants to do in terms of building capabilities. And, you know, with it, with NGAD and some of these concepts and aircraft, my, my only big question is with you know, a two peer adversaries with the North Koreans. Are we going to have the financial resources to build sufficient numbers of platforms and capabilities to defeat, you know, if we have a conventional conflict, will we be able to defeat both of those adversaries? And then can we keep that conflict from going nuclear? Uh, Cause it's, you know, the Russians and the Chinese are clearly trying to change the international order that the United States created and that we've lived in for 70 years. And I just wonder if the U S you know, it's that goes back to that guns versus butter debate. And if you look at the U S budget, it's much, much more butter and much less guns. And so, and then, you know, the air forces piece of that is, is relatively small and so i wonder can we fight with the capabilities that we are planning and we have them in sufficient numbers that's my big question this has been a production of the anwa deterrence center our executive producer is kimberly charrington and this episode has been engineered and mixed by david Frumthal. follow the show on linkedin facebook and twitter at nuclecast Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.